In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's the first verse of the Gospel of John, and I want to invite you to turn with me uh, for us to take a, a few moments today and for me to lead you through some thoughts about John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, as we're going to open up this year uh, focused on Christ, of Jesus being the immortal Son of God. In fact, this is the beginning of a, a new series of messages that is actually going to take me nearly two years for us to trek through. Uh, I'm going to uh, be in and out of the Gospel of John for the next two years, and we're going to look at every passage that this beautiful Gospel has for us, for us to see uh, the, the depth and the hope and the divinity that is found in Jesus Christ as our Lord. Uh, so, over the next couple of years, uh, I'm going to spend a month or two in the Gospel of John, and then we might break away for some other series about different subject matters. But I want to really encourage you that in the week ahead, maybe in your devotional times, that you would just take some time just to sit down with the very first chapter of the Gospel of John and just let it wash over, over your heart. Maybe there are some places that in 2017, they were big pain points for you. Perhaps there was uh, times of grief or mourning over things that had been lost. Uh, perhaps there were times of stress, and, and you felt like your life was just being stretched in a direction that you didn't think it was possible for you to snap back from. But here in this first chapter of John, we are given this beautiful portrait of who He is, of what it is that His life offers up to us. And it is this opportunity for us to look for hope and for healing from, from this, this one source, this one source that is Jesus our Lord. One of the, the great thinkers, and this is a quote that I've shared with you uh, earlier, uh, maybe six or eight months ago, that I thought was uh, worthy of repeating today. One of the great thinkers of Christianity over the last hundred years is a British pastor by the name of John Stott. And, and in one of the final books that he wrote before his passing uh, not too long ago, he said this, nothing is more important for Christian discipleship than a fresh, clear, true vision of the authentic Jesus. Uh, there's so much that we do under the auspices of religion. Uh, there's so, so much running around and, and so much busyness that we do, and, and there's so much good work that is done uh, under the grace that is Christianity. But I think Dr. Stott helps us to cut through, to see that, that the most vital thing that we do is not just be religiously busy people, it is not just to try to ascend to some kind of moral ideal of virtue by our own work and by our own effort. But the very core of everything that we are as Christians is to get a fresh, clear, true, authentic vision of who Jesus is. And the Gospel of John offers that to us. And so here... In the very first passage of this gospel, let me read 
verses 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through Him, and apart from Him not one thing was created that has been created. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. Let's pray together. Father, we, uh, we want to humble ourselves before Your Word. We want to humble ourselves and, and ask that You, by uh, the power of Your Holy Spirit, would move, comfort, maybe even rattle our cages a little bit, as it is that we need this clear, true, fresh vision of who Jesus truly is. Lord, it is not our desire just to have a religious gathering, Uh, just like-minded people in the same room saying the same thing, singing the same songs. Lord, it is our desire that we would encounter Christ, that, we, that our lives would be shaped and touched and molded and transformed by His work. And so, Lord, where it is that our wishes and our wants fall so shallow with the things of this world, that You would lift our eyes and You would clear our hearts and You would draw us close to Yourself so that we might know You the one true God. For it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. This is a passage of Scripture that as I was studying, one particular uh, uh, man wrote that it would be very easy for just these five verses to consume an entire semester's worth of lectures in seminary. So I hope that you're ready to write down a lot of stuff this morning. Uh, it is one of those passages that even as I was, I was joking around sometime earlier this week with, uh, with someone, and, and they said, oh, you know, come on, you know, could you really, you know, could you really do that? And I said, yeah, and I started rattling off all of the different ideas and concepts, and I could just off the top of my head come up with probably 10 or 12 different sermons, topics out of just these five verses. It is ripe with meaning and understanding about who Jesus is. And and we fall so short oftentimes in our lives being so consumed with so many different things that we lose sight that really Jesus is worth all of our attention, that Jesus is worth all of our affections, that Jesus being the immortal God of the universe is worthy uh, of everything of you dedicating your entire life to Him. And and the very fact that the God of the universe would make this radical, transformative choice that He would unfurl the truths of heaven, that He would roll back the veils between us and Him, and He would say, I want you to know me. That that at at its core and at its essence... The Bible is not a moral handbook. The Bible is not just a recording of history. It is the self-revelation 
of the eternal God of the universe so that we, the very mortal and temporary beings of the earth, would know who He is. And thus, this is a a portrait for us of Jesus the immortal. Let me hand to you four different ideas out of this passage and then some applications that I I hope will help us know what to do with the truths that are here. And, And this passage is just very plainly and very bluntly and very pointedly about Jesus. So number one, it tells us that Jesus is the God of eternity. Uh, There is uh, some thinking that Jesus was just a really nice rabbi, that he did some really good magic tricks, that maybe he even had some kind of uh, uh, supernatural mojo going on so that he could make blind people see and lame people walk, and, and maybe he did have some kind of supernatural power. But this passage is making a bold assertion and claim that, that Jesus is divine. It is not making the claim that Jesus is kind of like God or that Jesus has some God-like attributes floating around in his being, it is making the claim that Jesus is God. When, when it says here, in the beginning was the Word, and you'll see in your Bibles that that, that word, Word, is capitalized. It's referring to Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. In the beginning... It is this idea that he pre-exists before everything that we can see and hear and feel and touch in the cosmos. He pre-existed. He was before our beginning. And, And when it refers to Jesus as the Word, John, the writer of this gospel, is accessing some local, contemporary, current Greek philosophy. The New Testament is written in the ancient Greek language that was common to everybody. And the Greek philosophers of that day used the idea of word as a category, as a definitive attribute, of, and the Greek word is logos. And the term logos is the defining principle that, that related to the ordering of the universe. So when philosophers would get together and they would sit together in, in religious circles and, and they, would, they would talk about life and the meaning of life, they would use this term, this Greek word for, that we translate as word, logos, to talk about that's the defining principle that orders everything, that holds everything together. And so here John is saying about Jesus, he is the word. He is this defining principle that orders and and keeps the entire cosmos together. In the Hebrew people, which Jesus was a Jew, he was Hebraic, they used in the Hebrew language, there was their word for our word, word. This is getting very confusing. Just think about what it was like in my study this week. Um, The Hebrew term for word is debar, the same concept. And they used it in the sense that the debar is the activity of God which holds all things together. So, in both the the Jewish and the common Greek mind, John is making the assertion that Jesus is God, has always been in the Godhead, the Trinity. He pre-exists 
all of creation, and He is the one who has essential deity within Him. Now, there were a lot of people in this ancient time, just as we've had all through history, who have made all sorts of claims about being the Savior, the Messiah, the one who has come in order to bring about some kind of knowledge to mankind that's going to deliver us out of our hopelessness and out of our sinfulness. But here we have one upon whom the claim is being made that this is not just a nice guy who has sprung up from the masses, that he's going to deliver us from the tyranny of evil or from the brokenness of our hearts, or that he's going to bring hope where there's been some kind of dinginess in our lives. This is the one that the claim is being made radically that he is not just related to God, he is God. When you and I get together on these Sunday mornings as a congregation and we sing the songs about the amazing grace of God and how Jesus is the Messiah and how He is the one who one day will roll back onto the earth, how He is going to return again, we're not just talking about a nice guy who walked around a couple of thousand years ago. We are, along now with John's gospel, making the declaration that Jesus is the God of eternity and that we are personally related to Him. This is not just, I found a nice moral order to be a part of. This is not, I found a great little religious tome to read and give me a little, you know, moral help about what I do at work or with my family. This is us saying we are related and we are proclaiming and we are agreeing that Jesus is the God of eternity. The second thing it says here in this passage is that Jesus is the creator of the universe. It says in these first two verses that He was uh, with God in the beginning. And then it says in verse 3, all things were created through Him, and apart from Him, not one thing was created that has been created. Jesus' creative power, John is linking us back to the very first verses of the Bible in the book of Genesis where it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And here John starts out by saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then he links it into creation. Jesus, as part of the Trinity, as part of the Godhead, is present at the creation of everything that you and I can see, from, uh, from uh, all of the sea creatures to all of the crawling around things to the very breath of life that is within us to even all of the really cold iguanas that are falling out of trees in South Florida. Move to Florida, they said. It's warm all year long. I want to have a meeting with search committee after the service. (laughs) But he created everything. I mean, again, John is, he's not making a kind of, sort of, maybe this happened claim. He says, and apart from him, not one thing that was created has been created. Jesus, because He is the Creator, it means that He has the authority over everything. As the Creator of the universe, the Creator of life, the Creator of everything that we can see and sense, He is the authority and the King over all of it. In the Old Testament, in the book of Psalms 33, verse 6, it says, "...the heavens 
were made by the word of the Lord and all the stars by the breath of his mouth. It is God who has created all of these things, and Jesus is essentially divine and is God. So he's the God of eternity. He's the creator of the universe. And number three, Jesus is the source of all life. Life is not an accident. Now, there are some humanists and secularists who believe that life is accidental, that if given enough time, infinite time plus chance equals everything. Some of you will remember that as, uh, as an equation that I, I talked about several months ago, that when you look at the world through the lens that there's not a God or that maybe there is a God, but he doesn't really care about anything, you can say that infinite time plus chance equals us. But that's not what is claimed here in the Gospel of John. What is claimed here is that there is a divine being, God, who is behind everything, who has created everything, and that Jesus himself is the very source of all life. It says there in verse 4, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. Now, it's important that we take close note. And I like to use this illustration. It helps me to get a better handle on God. It says, in him was life. It does not say, in heaven there was a knick-knack cabinet, and somewhere hidden in a little cute box was life, and Jesus went and got it. It says that Jesus is the very source of life. It's not that there's a treasure chest up in heaven where there's life and there's grace and mercy and peace, and Jesus has got to go over to that cabinet in heaven and rummage around like we would in our junk drawer in the kitchen because we all have one. And he's got to rummage around in there and not the twine and not the stapler and, oh, there's the scissors I've been looking for. But it, and, and then he finds, oh, here's this little beam of light and life that I'm going to pop down onto the earth. It says, in him is life. Jesus, in his being, the one that you are related to, Jesus, the one who dies on the cross in your place for your sins, he is, in and of himself, the very source of all life that exists everywhere, at all times, in all places. And in creation, he becomes our new spiritual life. He is the one who puts the breath of life into humanity. And then when we're broken by our own sin, he is the one who comes along and rescues us in order to give us new life because of the work that he has done. Now, on this trek, that we're going to make through the Gospel of John, we're going to get to see this time and time again. As a matter of fact, let me just rattle through a few of the places in the Gospel of John where he talks about life being birthed out of the life of Jesus. Jesus says in chapter 10, verse 10, I have come so that they may have life and have it in abundance. In John chapter 3, verse 16, it says, God loved the world in this way that he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus said in John chapter 6, verse 51, 
I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Chapter 5, verse 40. But if you are not willing to come to me so that you will have life. In 10, 28, chapter 10, verse 28, he says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will ever snatch them out of my hand. In chapter 11, verse 25, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. And in chapter 14, verse 6, when he told his disciples that he was going to be leaving them soon and he was going to go to heaven and prepare a place for them in eternity and that they would come to him at some point, Thomas, the doubting disciple, said, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way to get there? And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the very source of life, both for you physically and for you spiritually. So he's the God of eternity. He is the creator of the universe. He is the source of all life. And also, fourthly, Jesus is the light in the darkness. Now, there's some of you that you feel like you're in the dark. I mean, it says here, there in verse 5, that light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. Now, we as very flawed, fallible, feeble, I didn't even mean to alliterate that, but I'm so Southern Baptist, I just did, sorry. Um, As human beings, we get lost in the dark a lot. Uh, we, we trip over our own feet spiritually. We make bad choices. Uh, we, we get crossways and sideways with people that we love and that we care about. Uh, we get angry at little things that shouldn't set us off, but we get peeved, and, 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 and we are jealous, and, and, and we are lustful, and, and we are wrathful at times. We find ourselves caught up in the darkness a lot. That is by nature how we're born. It is by uh, will what we often choose. And all of the darkness that exists, whether you are talking about the vastness of space or the darkness of the human heart, none of it can overcome the light that is Jesus. The darkness of a world estranged from God spiritually ignorant and blind, fallen and sinful, dominated by Satan. It is said of that world in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness." This great light that Isaiah proclaimed hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus is the Messiah that they were waiting on. And the light of Jesus shines into this dark world that is broken and busted and just simply torn apart. It is greater than the law, which was a schoolmaster, to show us how deeply and desperately we need God's righteousness. It is greater than the wisdom literature, that without faith we can't fulfill it. It is greater than all of the prophecies that were pointing toward it. It's even greater than the character we'll meet in this first chapter of John, John the Baptist, who says, The one who is coming after me is greater than me, and I'm not even worthy to sit down and untie his sandals. 
that John the Baptist at one point here soon is going to see Jesus coming down the road. And he is going to proclaim, look, there is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The darkness of our sin can never understand, overcome, or apprehend the light that is in the person of Jesus Christ. He conquers it utterly, completely, and totally. The sin that is in your life, the rebellion that is in our hearts, the thing which has broken the world, Jesus overcomes. The thing which grieves and mourns the heart of God because we are a people so far from Him, because we are separated from Him, He can overcome in your life through the person of Jesus. He is the God of eternity. He is not just a magic maker, worker, super guy who showed up that was really nice and did some cool tricks along the Israeli landscape. He is the creator of the universe. He, he is not just somebody who knew a lot of cool things. He was the one who put everything into motion and holds everything together. He is the source of all life. He didn't just have cool, keen, philosophical insights. He actually is the fountainhead of all life. He is the light in the darkness and in your darkness. And so what do we do with this? Well, the proclamation of Jesus' identity should force something to happen in our lives. For you to see from God's Word about who Jesus is, it makes us understand that He is asserting His authority. The, the proclamation of Jesus' identity is going to do three things for us. Number one, we need to recognize that Jesus is saying He has authority over you. Since He is the eternal God, the Creator, and the source of life, then He has the right to claim authority over everything, including you. Jesus' claims of authority do not somehow pass by you. Jesus has a rightful, kingly, royal, divine claim over your life, which means that you and me and us, that we have zero claim of authority over ourselves. All of the claims of authority that we make over our own lives is outside of God's rightful rule, and they're acts of rebellion. Every time I say, God, I know, I know what you said in your word, but every time we say, God, I know that that's what you want me to do, but every time we make some kind of claim of authority that is outside of his divine direction from his word and through the power of his Holy Spirit, we are saying, God, we get it that you're the king of the universe, but you're not the king of me. And we need to humble ourselves under His authority that is right and that actually is good. It asserts His authority, but secondly, it demands a response. When I stand before you, or a friend does, or a Bible study leader does, or, or you sit before the Bible and you read about the identity of Jesus... And the, and the Word of God tells us who Jesus is. It demands 
a response from us. For the skeptic, it demands a response of either faith or rejection. There's no middle ground here. For the believer, for those of us who have already come into a relationship with Christ and we have surrendered our souls before Him and we have said to Jesus, I'm going to put my faith in you that you are going to save me from my own sins, it demands the response of either faithfulness or selfishness. Again, there is no middle ground here. There's nothing in the midst here where you get to be in a neutral position about Jesus. The great writer and philosopher C.S. Lewis was once quoted, and I'll paraphrase, that there are many things that you can say about Jesus, but the one thing you cannot say about Jesus is that he is unimportant. You have to make a decision about Jesus. You're either going to have faith or you're going to reject him. You're either going to be faithful or you're going to be selfish. So it asserts his authority, it demands a response, but the beautiful thing, thirdly, is that it offers hope. The proclamation of the identity of Jesus is the most hopeful message that there is, that the God of the universe who created all things, who is the source of all life, who is the light in the darkness, that this God who is utterly different, utterly separate, completely holy, set apart in the heavenlies, decided that he was going to step out of heaven onto the earth to accomplish the work of salvation so that when you and I mourn, grieve, sin, mess up, make the wrong decision, rebel, and and just generally act like children, that he says, I'll step into the frame of your life and give you the hope that is not temporary, it's not just for the moment, it is the hope of eternity. And Jesus overcomes the darkness of our sin and of our rebellion and of the enemy and of the judgment that is rightfully poured out against all iniquity. And as the claim is that Jesus is God and with God, then the claim of what he does for us to relate to God, then it can be supported. If Jesus really is the God of the universe who created all things and is the source of all life and is the light in the darkness, when he then makes the claim that he's going to the cross to die for your sins and is risen from the dead, that's all the support you need. This is the God of the universe who has done this for you. This is the God of the universe who has done this for us. Not some little pittance, little Greek demigod from mythology who might turn on you. Not not some moral teacher who is a really good guy and somehow did a David Copperfield, Harry Houdini magic trick to fool us all to thinking that he died but somehow got out of the grave. But that this is the God of the universe who willingly, physically dies for you, and is risen from the dead for you, so that life and light can overcome the darkness of our lives and of our souls. This is an amazing proclamation of the identity of Jesus given for all mankind. And I want to encourage you today, I'm telling you, if you are here today and you have been so, you have been so religious, you have been so churched, or you have been so against it all, I am not asking you to suddenly 
come to terms with all of the history of Christendom and Protestantism or whatever ism it is that you've been a part of. Here's what I want you to come to terms with, that Jesus makes the claim and the gospel writers make the claim that Jesus is God and that the Bible is crystal clear that you and I are broken and sinful and that he, being God, decided to come and save us. And if you are already a Christian, that is the word that should be on your heart and it should be the first thing that you wake up with in the morning and the last thing that you go to bed with at night. And it should be the thing that when you look out at the, the vastness of humanity here in Bradenton and Manatee County and the whole world, that it categorizes the whole earth for you that there are people who know Jesus and there are people who don't know Jesus, and I need to make sure that the number of people who don't know Jesus get into the number of people who do know Jesus. And for you, that maybe you're at that point where you're like, well, I, I'm one of those. I don't know Jesus. Like, I knew that Jesus was this cool guy, but I didn't know all this stuff about him. Today, the Bible says today is the day of your salvation, where you can give your heart, your life, and put your faith in a God who not just stood back in eternity to see what was going to happen down here, but actually came down here to get you. So I want to pray with you, and I want to ask you that if you've never made that decision in your heart, in your mind, in your soul, that you want to trust Christ as the Lord of your life and the Savior of your soul and the one who forgives you of your sins, that you'll do that. And if you're a believer and you find yourself that you've been lazy or, or apathetic or just kind of cold to the idea of who Jesus is here lately in your life, that today your heart would be warmed and would be filled with the beauty of the proclamation of the identity of Jesus, the immortal Son of God who lights the dark. Let's pray.